are here at Genesis 27 and verse 41. Genesis 27, verse 41. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. And the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to my brother Laban in Haran, and stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereaved also of you both in one day? And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, like these who are the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Paddan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take himself a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge, saying, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Paddan Aram. Also, Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. So Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebajoth, to be his wife in addition to the wives he had. This is the written and the inerrant word of God. Let us pray. O Lord, open up this text to you that we may face misery in our life and that we may receive your blessing even in the midst of that misery. We pray, O God, that you work by your spirit to encourage us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, speaking to you as a pastor of scores of Christians who have spoken to me both of guilt and misery in their life, the pain of their lives, one of the most challenging distinctions we have to make as believers is the difference between guilt and misery. Guilt is the wrath and judgment of God against sin. Because we are guilty, we deserve that wrath and that judgment. As the simplified children's catechism of the Presbyterian Church states, what does every sin deserve? 
And the answer is the anger and judgment of God. Now, this anger and judgment of God has been atoned for at the cross of Calvary. For God's people who put their trust in Jesus as the only mediator between God and man. But that's guilt. The effects of our fall into sin also include misery. As the catechism states regarding Adam and Eve, what happened to our first parents when they had sinned? And the answer is, instead of being holy and happy, they became sinful and miserable. Do you see the parallels there? The parallel between holy and sinful, that's in the nature of our relationship with God. And then there is the happiness of our life here. They were utterly happy in the garden, but then they became miserable. And the catechism goes on to say, what effect had Adam's sin on all mankind? All mankind is born in a state of sin and misery. Misery is the stench and the sadness flowing out of sin. It's the pain caused by our pride. It's the harvest of the hurt that we have caused to others and the hurt we also hold in our hearts because of the sin of others. This misery takes a lifetime to heal, and some of the misery is never healed until we get to heaven. Listen to David reflect near the end of his life upon sin and misery. If you turn with me to page 297, 2 Samuel 23 and verse 4. 2 Samuel 23 and verse 4, we read, this is talking about God. Verse 4, And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Now note, before we go on here, this is he's speaking this toward the end of his life. This is not right when he sinned with Bathsheba and not right when he had killed Uriah. This is many years later. And he's saying at the end of his life, by clear shining after the rain, this is what God has done for me. Although my house is not so with God. He, he saw the empty business in his house and that hurt him. And yet he is encouraged again as we go on in verse 5. Yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase. You see, David has experienced the refreshment, the tender grass springing out of the earth. He's seen the forgiveness that he got, but yet he sees there's still effects of my sin. It's not so with my house. And sometimes our pain is caused by our family. Sometimes our pain is caused by unbelieving people in the workplace or the neighborhood. And our sin and our guilt is atoned for by Christ immediately upon the moment we're converted. But that doesn't make all the misery of the fall fall away. 
Now turn back to 2 Samuel 12. This is page 283 if you want to look there. 2 Samuel 12, verses 2, verses 13 and 4, 13 and 14, page 283. 2 Samuel 12 and 13. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He's referring to the sin of adultery and murder. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. That's the matter of our justification. That's our salvation. That's the relief of our guilt. God does that immediately. The Lord has put it away as soon as he confessed. He was a child of the king, and the king put away his sin. But look at verse 14. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. There's the misery. We need to recognize that David had planted a seed. That seed became a baby boy. And that boy died. Do not be deceived, Paul writes in Galatians 6, 7. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. If we rebel against God and his law, and we don't believe what his God has said, like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden... We can repent of that sin. And I believe Adam and Eve were believers based on some clues in chapter 3 of Genesis that we went over many, many months ago. We can repent of that sin, but then they had the pain of Cain and Abel in their own family. Sin had entered in. We need to recognize this does not violate the promise of Jesus. He said in John 10, verse 10, I have come that you might have life and that you may have it more abundantly. Jesus meant that. Abundance can coexist with some pain and even misery in our life. You can still lay claim to the joys of creation, the beauty of God's earth, the fellowship of Christ's people in the church, the satisfaction of a job well done, exercising your role as an image bearer of God, and even experiencing as depending on your situation the, the joys and comforts of hobbies and home and family. You have your own daily walk with Christ, hand in hand with the Savior, appreciating his goodness and his mercy and his bounty for you unto salvation. And so... I pray that this morning you will find healing in God's house from some of the misery you have experienced. May you grow and learn with God's people that more and more you can leave behind the hurt and walk into the healing of God's love. Recall with me the text last, year, last week, Isaac's sin, Rebecca's sin, Jacob's sin, Esau's sin. Isaac rebelled against God's word. He disobeyed the word of God by proceeding to try to bless Esau. Rebekah schemed and plotted like a trickster to get Jacob blessed. Jacob lied to his father repeatedly, and Esau sinned 
by means of a mixed marriage, rebelling against the covenant by intermarrying with non-believers who did not worship the true and living God. Now we see that these three, Isaac, Rebekah, and Jacob, are believers. It says in the Bible that Isaac, uh, by faith in the promised Messiah, by faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau regarding things to come. There's no question about their eternal destiny, but then they experienced the misery which we consider today, verses 41 to 46, unwinding the misery of sin, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 28, blessed for the journey, and then verses 6 through 9 of chapter 28, too little, too late. So let's consider verses 41 to 45, as we consider, 41 to 46, as we consider the flight. And that flight is where Rebecca tells Esau that she should run for the hill, that he should run for the hills. Esau learned that Jacob had been blessed and he wanted to kill Jacob. And Isaac had said to Esau, I have blessed, indeed, Jacob shall be blessed. And all that was left for Esau was what we read in verse 40, you will serve your brother and it shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. And throughout history, uh, his descendants tried to break free from Israel. So Rebecca is telling Jacob, you better scram. You better get out of here. So here is Jacob wrenched from the home of his father and mother and cast upon a solo journey far away. That means misery for him. He happened to be a bit of a mother's boy. He happened to be very comfortable around the home. If you take a look at chapter 25 and verses 27 and 28, it says, So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Here he is in a miserable place having to leave home on a long journey and go to be in a place he did not want to be, forced to flee. And the second aspect of misery was fear, verses 44 through 45. You see, Rebecca and Jacob are filled with fear. They uh, fear the anger of Esau. Go and stay with uh, my brother Laban a few, few days and, and, and just hang out with him and your brother's fury will turn away. Well, uh, I don't think so. Esau had said, I'm going to wait until my father dies and then I'll go kill him. Esau was in a waiting game here. This was not an anger that was going to go away in days. There's real fear in the face of death. And Jacob and Rebekah will have to unwind this fear and it will be miserable for them. They will be separated. And the message we learn from the Bible here is it's likely that Jacob never saw his mother again. We understand that he came back and Isaac was alive. And the only thing we know about the timing of Rebekah's uh, 
the nature of her death is that she is buried in the cave of Machpelah near Hebron in Genesis 49:31. But there's no mention of a time when Jacob comes back and then her mother dies. So we assume that they never saw each other again. You know, it takes time to unwind misery. Back in 2008, we had a financial meltdown. It was called the Great Recession, the biggest recession since the Depression in the 30s. And it came from collateralized debt obligations, which were uh, bad notes, which are based on faulty loans, which have been given to unqualified borrowers. And everybody was turning their eye. Houses were being evaluated way higher than they should have been. And then these uh, mortgages were bundled together to back up loans. These uh, loans started collapsing and economists at the time told us it would be many years until these bad debts were processed. The economy had to unwind from all the lying and all the bad business that had been d done. And so when we are in our life, we have times of unwinding. We have times where mistakes which were made, sins which were done, have to over time be processed. And Rebecca was in far from being in an honest place when she started the unwinding. You see, the debts in 2008 had to be labeled as debts, and they had to have bankruptcies, and you had to have people say that group of collateralized debt obligations, that, that's totally worthless. There had to be truth told. And here we see in, in the Bible that she was not really telling the truth. We see here in the Bible that she's basically blaming it all on Jacob. And, and, and she just says that, you know, you lied to your brother. And you, 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 you uh, uh, verse number 45, he, he is going to be angry until he forgets what you have done to him. But didn't Rebecca put him up to that? Didn't Rebecca become the one when, she, when he had objections saying, I might be caught and I might be cursed by my father instead, that she says in verse 13 of the previous chapter of 27, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go get them for me. Go get those uh, goats that I'm going to cook up. You have to deal with truth if you're going to unwind misery. There has to be confession in the family, there has to be an honest appraisal of what went wrong. And until that happens, we are going to be continuing to live out in some of the pain and some of the misery. And so here she is afraid. She is afraid and she, instead of talking to Esau and telling Isaac of the threats that were made against Jacob, she just basically goes along and says, okay, that's the story. You got to leave. Verse 45, why should I be bereaved also of you both in one day? You see, it could have happened in one day that they both got killed. If Esau tried to kill Jacob, Jacob might try to kill him back and defend himself, and they both would be dead. Or it could be that Esau would kill Jacob, and then Esau would be held to account with capital punishment, because it says in Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, 
by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made man. So she's afraid she's going to lose them both. But I want to suggest to you, she lost them both anyway. Because Jacob went away and probably never saw her again in his life. And we read in Genesis 27, and we see there in Genesis 28, and we see in verse 9, that Esau took a wife from Ishmael and went off to go to Ishmael. He went to where Ishmael was living. And we learn in another passage in 2518 that Ishmael was living in Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt as you go toward Assyria. That ain't Canaan, okay? So she lost both of them. And this is what we call the law of unintended consequences. This is what's called, you know, I don't want to lose both of my sons, but you go ahead and set a course where you do end up losing both of your sons. For example, it could be that you're afraid for your marriage and out of fear, you seek to save your marriage by doing something that compromises your principles such as your faith in Christ. You deny your faith and you say, okay, I'll go along with you and I won't go to church anymore on Sunday morning and just, oh, forget it, it's over. But then unintentionally, you get booby-trapped in the midst of your very compromise and things don't get better even though you were trying to make peace and compromise your faith by never worshiping with God's people. That's an unintended consequence. Let's say you're afraid for your health or you're confused about your identity. Out of fear, you seek to save your health or change your identity by dramatic, untested, unwarranted changes in your life. And unintentionally, you get sicker still. You get more depressed in the midst of the change in your life. You give into your fears. Whereas what we are meant to do is to give our fears to the Lord and trust him, seek his glory in obedience always to God's revealed word in the scriptures. Now, the next aspect of unwinding the misery is in verse 46. We have fleeing, we have fear, but we also have fatigue here. And you'll read in verse 46, Rebecca said to Isaac, I am weary of my life. She is filled with weariness, what the French call ennui. It's this sense of despair over life. I'm just sick and tired of it all. So make sure Jacob doesn't marry a Hittite. I have to say to you that we are tempted by depression. We are tempted by tiredness. We say to ourselves, it's not worth it. I'm just going to throw it all over. We're weary of the world. We're dissatisfied. We're depressed over choices we've made and other people have made. And I'm calling you today, brothers and sisters, to run the race of faithfulness unto God. And if our past life lamentably includes some examples of disobedience or dishonesty or dissembling to deceive another as it did with Jacob and Rebekah and Esau. 
Let us face that misery. Let us come clean before God, not covering up our part in it as Rebecca did, but to seek reconciliation. Seek the reconciliation of Esau and Isaac rather than the rage, accepting the rage. Pray for change rather than continual chafing of personalities. Accept the reality of some misery in life and realizing it, you make accommodations for it and you accept it rather than denying it. And you say, Lord, I now need your blessing, God. I face this. I admit it. Oh, Lord, bless me. And that's exactly what we get in chapter number 28, verses 1 through 5. Blessed for the journey. And Jacob is set off on a journey. Isaac hears what his wife has said about not wanting Jacob to have a wife from the Hittites. And he says declaratively, as the head of the household, verse 1, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Paden Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's wife, mother's father, and take yourself a wife there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. And so, going, he goes with a blessing. And this most beautiful blessing is found here in verses 3 and 4. It's shorter than some of the other blessings, but it incorporates some wonderful things, two key elements, the assembly of peoples and the land. You see, back in Genesis chapter 12, if you keep your finger here and turn back to chapter 12, you're going to see a couple different aspects of the blessing that came to Abraham. And one of them is in verse 2, I will make you a great nation. And then at the end of verse 3, it says, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so we have, you're going to be a great nation, but guess what? You're going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And what happens here in 28 verse 3 is that God combines those into one blessing. He is blessed that God would bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may be an assembly of peoples. An assembly of peoples is that in one people, the church, you have an assembly of peoples. People from every different ethnic group. That word people speaks to the ethnicity of a people group. And so we see here that God is going to fulfill this blessing, be a blessing to all the families of the earth, and also make Abraham a great nation by doing it in the church. And the church is around the world. And there are millions of believers who are living out this precise blessing right now. All the families of the earth are now an assembly. And that word assembly speaks to the whole issue of being a, 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 a gathered people, a kahal, an assembly. That's the church in the New Testament. They are called together. Ecclesia relates to kahal. And so I want you to see here, we are always going to be glorying in the ethnic diversity 
of the church. There's no place in Christ's church for what is called kinism. Kinism has been invading conservative reformed churches across the country in the wake of the migrant crisis at the southern border. And this kinism means that the church is supposed to grow only among our kin, and we want to keep it white. And what these illegitimate preachers are doing is they're yanking a political and security crisis at the border, and they're bringing that crisis into the pulpit and into the church, demanding that we keep the church white and keep peoples who are non-white out of here. Owen Strachan, an outstanding Reformed Baptist theologian, has eloquently been warning the church of the danger of this movement. And uh, we need to recognize that we are meant to be an assembly of peoples. Christ's church is that place. And Christ's church is meant to be diverse, a beautiful tapestry of true ethnic diversity. This word, diversity, is a word which we should never allow to be hijacked by the world. It's a great word, but it has been hijacked to mean other things. And we should never shrink, however, from using it in its proper ethnic context. True diversity is an assembly or company of peoples. It's not an assembly of rebels. We are rather Jew-Gentile of every hue, of every religious, of every socioeconomic, of every blue-collar, white-collar background. And here we are, together, converted unto faith in the living God. The second aspect of the blessing is found there in verse 4. And give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. We're strangers on this earth. We are going to inherit the land. And the land ultimately is the new heaven and the new earth. It says in Hebrews eleven sixteen about these patriarchs, but now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. That's the place we're going. And that's the land we must be looking for. Never settling and being content on some political party or a political individual to provide us happiness and peace. That blessing comes from God. And we pursue it because this text, these verses 3 and 4, are accomplished nowhere else but in Jesus Christ. It did not happen that there was an assembly of peoples in the Old Testament. That was one people. That was the Jews. It was not until Christ came that the blessings of salvation were opened willy-nilly to the whole world. And it is in Christ that we have this hope. It is even in Christ as we see the fulfillment found in 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 1. If you want to turn over there, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And we read the fulfillment of promise in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 18. But as God is faithful, 
our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Remember that verse. That's a key verse for you to remember when you think about the Old Testament promises and the New Testament promises. They find their yes in Christ. So trust in Christ today. The promise is yours of the personal presence of Christ in the midst of misery, that you are incorporated in an assembly of peoples and you have a promised land to which you are going. You need to keep your eyes on heaven. Lift up your eyes and look to the coming Christ. Consider also 28, 6 through 9, too little, too late. At the end of this passage, we read of Esau. He notices what his mother's view is toward intermarriage. And he knows also that um, his marriage to the daughters of Canaan did not please his father. So he says, okay, what am I going to do about this? Oh, boy. Oh, let's get another wife. And let's make her be the daughter of Ishmael. Oh, Ishmael. Oh, yeah. He's the fruit of an illicit union between Abraham and Hagar the slave. That's works righteousness. That's, I'm going to take things in my own hand, and I'm just going to go ahead, and I'm going to make this baby happen for hook or by crook. Oh, that's the one whose daughter you want to marry. Not a good idea. Okay, he was already one over the limit. He already had two daughters, two wives, one over the limit, and, and this was not a good, good deal. As Davis puts it, this was kind of an uncorrecting correction. As Kidner puts it, to take a third wife, even though an Ishmaelite was better than a Hittite, was hardly the way back to blessing. Don't regress. Don't go back to past errors and sort of fiddle with them as a way of going forward. Esau had a pilgrimage, and it was definitely not enriched by going back to the legacy of works righteousness in Ishmael's line. So let us review misery and blessing. The misery multiplies as the sins are committed. So a clutch issue in avoiding misery is sanctification in your daily life. You are saved in a moment by justification. But if you want to avoid misery, then Seek to be sanctified. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification. Come to Christ today. Come and commit yourself to honesty. Commit yourself not to blaming other people. Commit yourself to being the kinds of persons who obey God's words, even if you're drawn to something else. That will reduce the load of misery that flows out of ongoing sin in your life. And recognize that God's holiness is more important even than your happiness. The order of the blessings given in the catechism is that God made them holy and happy. As you seek to be holy before God, you will have ever up-surging waves of happiness in your life. And remember this as you wonder about why the misery, why is it still there?
Look at an English garden that's enhanced by a variety of colors and themes in its flower beds. And think of black snapdragons in one of those beds, a blood red flower speaking of suffering and grief and pain, reminding you of blood. But then next to it, a whole bed of yellow hyacinth, rows and rows and rows of victorious, blooming yellow blossoms like the start of a new day. God has allowed in your life the capability of the life of the yellow hyacinth to be contrasted against the darkness and the pain of the black snapdragons. God has allowed you in the midst of misery to still shine forth his grace. And people see that. People know that you are exercising faith as you come to Christ and say, Lord, I want to see your resurrection power in my life. I want to see the fulfillment of that blessing in Psalm, in Genesis 28, 3 and 4. Lord, I want to see it happen. I want to see that land in glory. I want to be part of an assembly of peoples in a local church. I want to see these pews filled. I want to see you do something here, God. And I want to see you do it through me. So I shall rejoice. I shall rejoice, even with that flower bed over there, which I haven't figured out totally, but I am going to dwell in the land of the living. Oh, dear church, look at God's rich mosaic of diversity in the body of Christ, founded on the solid rock of our glorious Savior, and walk into the light of Jesus' resurrection, a blessing fulfilled in his own person and work, and know his victory. Keep your hot time horizon set on eternity, and then you will live here and now with greater joy. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, bless my dear friends, my sisters and brothers in Christ. Help me, oh, Lord, to learn the message of this ser sermon. Oh, God, give me greater contentment, and let me always know the blessing of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, in whose name we pray and give each person